We have tonight as our special guest speaker, uh, a really special guest, uh, but he's not really a guest because Michael Sheldrick has been um, uh, a, a component of AWIWA and even better still, a bursary winner. If I'm not mistaken, he was our first bursary winner. Um, what year was that, Michael? 2012. 2012, so, so 10 years ago. And uh, Michael has, at the time you were a student here at UWA, and uh, subsequently, Michael went on to co-found Global Citizen. Uh, Global Citizen, uh, for those who read the promo material, is a very interesting and innovative group, I would say, um, an Australian initiative. And, and it works um, across global issues uh, in an advocacy role. Uh, I'll let Michael tell his journey and explain a little bit more uh, as part of his presentation tonight, um, what that journey has been and how effective Global Citizen has been. Um, I won't speak too much more about his biography, except to say that uh, from our perspective, AWIWA is very proud to see the, the, the journey that Michael has been on uh, from his days as a student here at UWA, from his bursary award, uh, and going on and co-founding this great uh, global organization with an Australian background. Uh, Michael, I'll hand over the mic to you, or really there's, there's, a, there's another mic for you to use, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing your comments. Um, and as is custom as well, we will revert to a Q&A after your, your comments. And for those uh, on the Zoom call uh, attending virtually, please do not hesitate to start typing in your questions through um that chat function or the q a function should i say and um all good all good all right so michael over to you thank you well thanks everyone um and thanks for that warm introduction um it's great being back here at uwa i have to say um in some ways it's very surreal um the last time i was here in perth was october 2019 and since moving to New York almost a decade ago, I would always come back every year. And little did I know that it would be so long between my last visit and this one, as, as many people probably overseas found. Um, but it's great to be back here. And, and really, I think special because in many ways, um, you know, this, this institute um, played a key role in getting Global Citizen off the ground um, long before we had any funders or support um, you know, that bursary it provided me with the opportunity to travel to India um, and see polio eradication programs on the ground. And it was that experience that really laid the groundwork for some of our initial campaigns. So, um, you know, I, I know it was 10 years ago, but the impact of that um, can never be um, overstated. And so I just want to thank um, the Institute for that investment in me. And so always happy to come back and, and speak and any assistance or support I can provide in any way. And, um, you know, a pleasure to see you as well, um, Sue. Um, and uh, belated congratulations on on your book as well. So, which, which um, you know, I think it's tremendous. And so thank you for having me and, and your leadership. And I have to also point out, um, Saminga, it's amazing seeing you. Saminga was one of my professors, um, which um, hard to believe that was, 15 years ago when I first had introduction to international relations, but I often reflect back on, you know, that 
quite fondly as well. So it's great seeing you um, again. And so really want to begin um, by just acknowledging that. Um, I guess what I, I I will talk about is, you know, I've spoken to the Institute a few times over the years, but really, I guess what life was like for us as an organization and how we pivoted during the pandemic, um, you know, essentially, you know, very, very early on in the pandemic. Is this Sharon now? Or? Oh, <laughs> um, we, um, uh, you know, as many in the world, you know, I was sat in, in New York in March 2020. Um, we shut down our office um, at the last week of February and got home a week into the pandemic, was sat on the couch, and it was a very scary time to be in New York. You know, we had been hearing the stories about what was going on in, in Italy, but very quickly, you know, that that case which start, began as one came to New York, one spiraled out into many others. And, you know, as we sat there, you know, watching what was going on, watching what Donald Trump was saying, you know, we were, uh, a whole team was petrified. And, um, you know, we got this phone call from Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization, and they were extremely fearful on two, two fronts. The first was the fact that they were worried about just people generally around the world, not knowing how to social distance, not knowing, you know, what was going to happen during a pandemic. No, no one really did know. Secondly, they were worried about, and unfortunately became the reality, the COVID response being politicized and what that would mean for U.S. support for the World Health Organization and the global response going forward. And unfortunately, it's true that whenever you have a pandemic, it's the most marginalized, vulnerable communities who, who um, you know, suffer the most. And so Global Citizen, which had been known for many things, but became known most well for our pop and policy approach, where we basically sought to mainstream issues galvanize people to take action and most well known for our music festivals around the world we would host a big um, festival on the great lawn of central park every year we would give sixty thousand tickets away in exchange for taking action we had some of the as you can see here we had some of the biggest artists of all time perform we had leaders commitment makers make commitments worth 60 billion dollars over the last decade all of a sudden, we were kind of left without a platform because we're most well known for live events, but we couldn't do any of it. And so as we were getting help, for, as, as we were getting requests for support from Dr. Tedros, we had to quickly pivot. And the first thing we did is we had a cold play of Chris Martin. And we came up with this idea and we said, look, everyone's at home right now, but maybe what we can do is give people a way to learn disengage a little bit, forget about what's happening. And so he got on his social media with us. We called it Together at Home. And um, basically what he did is, you know, he, he played some music, played some tunes, and then people were quickly asking how they, how they can help. And we had people donate to the World Health Organization. We had people donate, um, you know, all manner of different activities. We had people get engaged and ask how they can support, how they can volunteer. And at the end of that, he passed the baton to John Legend, 
the artist, John Legend, passed that on. And eventually it ended up getting passed to Lady Gaga. And we had this amazing call with Lady Gaga. And she said, I'm going to mobilize all of the artists around the world, um, which we did that. And literally, as I got off the, the phone with her and her team, you know, I felt these um, aches in my leg, these fever, these chills. And then, you know, there was no way of knowing at the time. It was only later with the antibodies test, but I became the first person in our organization, the first person, certainly in my family, and most people still tell me I was the first person they knew anywhere in the world um, in their networks who had COVID. And so I was running this global COVID response, having just gotten COVID, and it was an exceptionally scary time. You would see ambulances outside. You know, we lived in a part of Brooklyn which was really ground zero. The hospital was overflowing, lights and sirens. And yet we had this amazing hardworking team that just picked it up, ran with it. And in three weeks, we were able to bring together some of the world's biggest artists. Um, we had it broadcast in over 150 countries. We partnered with Tencent China. And for the first time ever, we had it broadcast into China as well, uncensored. They took the whole thing. Um, we worked with Alibaba and others, and we raised um, $128 million from the private sector on that one, one moment. And um, it was a special moment at the end of that. And I was just coming out, um, recovering from COVID. We had Lady Gaga wanted to thank our team, which was 100 people around the world. Um, and, and it was quite, a, quite an emotional moment. She thanked our team and she said this moment this love letter to health workers around the world meant more to her than winning an oscar um for a star is born uh, the previous year and you know from that you know we got we suddenly get in lots of requests for help and one of the requests for help actually came from ursula von der Leyen, the president of the european commission now she was locked down in brussels having just been the defense minister under angela merkel and she said you know what can i what can i do meaningfully and and it was interesting because the us had left the entire global covid response wanting for leadership and the only real leader in the g7 that stepped up was was von der Leyen. and in that time mid 2020 she was the only real leader that i could see who actually proactively said there's going to be this issue. She foresaw the issue of vaccine nationalism. She said, you know, vaccines are going to be purchased up when it's eventually developed. It's going to be hoarded by the wealthy countries and the poorest countries are left behind. And so she came to us having been locked down in her home in Brussels, seeing what we were doing. And she said, she got on the phone with us and said, can you do that again? This time we're going to raise funds to develop the vaccine but also to make sure plans are in place to distribute it equity. And so thus was the start of COVAX um, and the fundraising for it. It was a interesting combination. We got Dwayne Johnson, The Rock and others on board, putting him alongside von der Leyen as the co-chairs, you know, during the pandemic, you know, literally popping policy, you know, living, breathing around the world. And we took that campaign forward. We did it for a year. Um, we partnered with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry and Meghan. We did this extraordinary campaign called Vax Live. We dedicated it to, to um, 
um, health workers, and we were able to mobilize 26 million vaccines, um, including with the support of New Zealand to get vaccines out to the Pacific as well. And then from there, last year, we got involved in um, climate change as well. And we were asked by Alok Sharma, the COP26 president in Glasgow, you know, if we would mobilize artists in the lead up. And his concern, you know, a particular concern for him was this idea that, look, developing countries already feel that they've been basically left behind on vaccine. There is a huge trust deficit right now amongst developing countries and developed countries. And so he said, you know, one small gesture is if we could meet our promises on climate change when it comes to climate financing. So he said in 2009, President Obama had promised $100 billion a year annually in climate financing. And he said, you know, we still haven't met that. We're two years late. It's not going to be enough. But if we can meet that by Glasgow, it might go some way um, towards restoring trust. And so we hammered the US Congress, we hammered um, Australia, Italy, the G7, and we did this event with um, concerts all around the world on in a single 24 hours. And because of COVID, it was a very mixed experience. We had Alton John in front of the Eiffel Tower, people in Central Park, Lagos, Nigeria, we did the Sydney Opera House, um, introduced by Hugh Jackman, Delta Goodrum. Unfortunately, the lockdown took place, so it was to an empty audience, but it was seeing um, around the world. And here's here's a brief snapshot and um, video just recapping the highlights. <laughs> things and it's time to make a change and it starts within together let's make 2022 the year we end this pandemic and did more to help the world's refugees than ever before let the world leaders hear your voice are you ready for the wake up love and solidarity for others is how we will make a better future. And so since then, um, in the last few months, you know, we've, we've mobilized extraordinary uh, prize winners around the world. We developed this Global Citizen Prize. We've had prize winners from right across the world, um, from Samoa all the way through to Nigeria, through the UK, holding up their voices. Um, and most recently, we did a huge campaign called Stand Up for Ukraine. So again, this theme of constantly um, you know, responding, pivoting, and we found that in the age of a pandemic, I suppose we found out that our sweet spot is that we could be very agile, we could be 
very nimble. We have a hundred staff based around the world, but actually, you know, it's nowhere near the big institutions, the World Bank, the governments, but in some ways it allows us to be present and move at a, at a speed and scale, which they, they just can't match. And so President Zelensky reached out very early on after the war in Ukraine. We connected with his ambassador um, in, in New York and basically they said look people are fleeing we are focused on the military action but so many people have crossed the border who's gonna take care of them and so i found myself on the polish ukrainian border we convinced uh, prime minister trudeau of canada to come on board and we mobilized in the space of about a week or so 140 artists from bruce springsteen to bon jovi to bono to basically do a 24-hour uh, global social media rally. We invited governments around the world. We had 30 participate, pledging $10 billion um, to provide humanitarian assistance, both for those who had fled, um, but also those, um, you know, the EU did some support, but there were countries like Moldova, the poorest country in Europe, who had to look after them, and critically for those that couldn't flee um, at the time. And what was so important was also making sure that this money didn't come at the expense of other humanitarian crises around the world. We were acutely aware, you know, what's going on in Yemen, you know, the Horn of Africa, so many issues. And we said, you know, the worst we can do in a crisis is in effect pitch vulnerable people against one another. This has to be additional. It has to be additional support. Um, and so most recently off the back of that campaign, our mission in 2015 was to end extreme poverty by 2030 in, in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And, you know, we recognized, well, look, after two years of a pandemic, 100 million people have been pushed back into extreme poverty because of the war in Ukraine and the way in which food, in, in my opinion, has been weaponized, which is, you know, a grossly cowardly criminal act of the most uh, hideous proportions because of the way food's been weaponized, the price of fertilizer, the price of food's gone up. And what we've seen is in the, in the space of a hundred days, it's estimated that 200 million people have been pushed back into extreme poverty, double the number than during the whole pandemic combined. And if that bears out to be true, basically all the gains that's been made since 2015 have been wiped off. And so we said it, it seems bizarre to talk about 2030, these goals, when we're responding with complacency, with inaction. And so we updated our mission to end extreme poverty now with the emphasis on the action that's needed now, the fact that we cannot delay these issues anymore. We cannot put it on the back burner. You know, yes, um, you know, we're going for our pro problems, but for many countries, our aid budget is less than 1%. And we saw very early on in the pandemic how wealthy nations can quite quickly mobilize resources to bail out their economies. And so who was bailing out the world's poorest, most marginalized communities? And so our current efforts are really focused around three core areas. Um, the first is adolescent girls, the second climate change, and the third is ending systemic barriers. Um, on, on the first issue, and I would say we've got some amazing support from leaders around the world who have signed on, endorsed this plan, 
I was in Canberra on Friday and I'm hopeful that now the Australian government will sign on and support this plan because we haven't had that. And it's always been a jarring experience. You're almost about like living in exile when people would say, you're doing all these great things. Where's, where's Australia backing you up? Um, but just in terms of our priorities, the first I mentioned ending systemic barriers. We're really looking at two issues here, and it's two issues that both prolonged the pandemic and ensured it had a disproportionate impact on the world's poor. The first is around this issue of healthcare injustice, um, making sure not just vaccines, test treatments, and for all diseases is made rapidly available and countries actually have the means to produce. You know, during the pandemic, countries over a hundred manufacturers in developing countries such as Bangladesh, South Africa, they actually had the means to produce vaccines themselves, but they didn't have access to the IP and the know-how in order to do it. So it's addressing that. The second key thing is also around financial inequity. I've spoken to finance ministers in sub-Saharan Africa, foreign ministers, prime ministers, and they all say, listen, you know, it is outrageous that during the pandemic, you know, when wealthy nations had access to cheap capital, cheap debt, we were promised capital at 10, 20%. Over 50 countries paid more in debt suspension than they did in, 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 in healthcare or education, looking after their citizens. And now we're seeing, you know, the, the rise in inflation and you've got developing countries who did not benefit from those stimulus at all had to pay high debt and now on the receiving end of that in even more crushing debt and in this region you've seen the consequence of that with Sri Lanka a country that should have never never the G20 should should have prevented that collapse and that default from happening and so we've got a series of recommendations on what we can do to provide urgent liquidity financial equity to countries around the world. It's a huge issue. Countries need to have the means to respond themselves. The second one is the issue of climate change. Um, and for us, it really is ending this dichotomy, which isn't really helpful between wealthy nations and developing nations. We all need to be at the table. We all need to be contributing. There needs to be a just and fair transition. Um, and we've been working with the Indonesian government on this and pleased to say that the Indonesian government as the G20 host is one of our patrons for this year. Um, so that's been really encouraging, exciting and what they want to do. And then I, I would just comment, this is Brianna, who's one of our prize winners from Samoa. And, you know, for us, it's always about showing the optimistic side of what's possible. And when she accepted her award a month ago, she made it clear that you know, action on climate change doesn't need to be the end. It could be the beginning of a new environmental renaissance, one that brings impacted workers, one that brings um, vulnerable communities all, all together. And I, I would just know, it seemed to me, and I can be corrected, I haven't been here in a long time, but just looking at what the Western Australian government just did in its phase out of coal by 2029, how they brought workers together from Collie who would be impacted and made sure there was community consultation, money on the table to assist in that transition. It's that sort of leadership that we need globally right now. Um, and lastly, empowering adolescent girls. You know, we, we talk in development 
um, often that there is no silver bullet for ending poverty, but to the extent there is one, empowering adolescent girls is one of the most important thing, and yet their rights have been pushed back. And during the pandemic, many of them was millions of girls were pushed out of the classroom and into um, unpaid domestic care and other works disproportionately, which they hold the burden. And you know, we know from the work of Malala Yousafzai and others just how important this is, national security, development, lifting other communities out. And so this is a huge, huge, huge priority for us. And I would just say, you know, being back in, in Australia, you know, and again, I've, I've not been here in close to three years, but I would just say that when the prime minister got up in his election night speech and spoke about his priorities, spoke about indigenous reconciliation, you know, it was a story that was noticed around the world. It was a story, not just in the UN, but in many places in the world, in Africa and the Caribbean. And many of them look, you know, I think there's always this perception in Australia, people use the phrase, you know, we punch above our weight. And I've always hated that phrase because I've always felt, you know, it sets such a low bar. And when you say punch above our weight, you're already setting the bar low of what, what the expectations is. And Australia, as Julie Bishop used to say, is a top 20 nation in the world we should be striving for that and you know I, I would just finish you know on the sentiment that you know as i've traveled over the years whether it's um our mandela 100 in which we honored um nelson mandela arguably the greatest global citizen of our time you know people still tell me the stories of how gareth evans as foreign minister rallied the commonwealth under the Hawke government to apply sanctions even in the face of opposition from Margaret Thatcher and how Gareth Evans was one of the first foreign ministers on the ground in South Africa to meet with a released Nelson Mandela. And recently, even more personal, my um, uh, fiance, I, I got engaged um, during the pandemic and hope to bring her to Perth at a, at a later point. Um, you know, her, she, she grew up in China, but her uncle, who I met for the first time last week in Melbourne, I was asking him, how he how he arrived his story and he told me that he was a student in 1989 when Tiananmen Square happened and he spoke about how Bob Hawke stood up and gave all those students asylum and the legacy of that you know today his whole family what it means for them you know he he said he's internally grateful to to Australia for that and so you know there are times when Australia has been and it's best in in the world and um you know from our perspective you know uh if we can play a role in encouraging that then you know we're we're happy to be helpful but just once again um i'll, I'll pause there but it's just really great being back here um and thanks thanks for having me and happy to answer any questions thank you Firstly, Michael, uh, congratulations on your engagement. Thank you. Um, and that's a very public announcement, so we'll publicly <laughs> congratulate you. Um, we are open for questions. I've got a, many, but I'll open it to the floor and also to the, um, the attendees uh, who are on Zoom. But I've got the first question here. Do I need the mic? I need the mic to go to James. Otherwise, the people online can't hear him. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Michael, and that was an amazing presentation. Congratulations on the work that you've done and with all your team. Um, just want to ask you, the World Trade Organization met last week and there was an announcement, I think, that released IP 
uh, to developing countries to manufacture vaccines. Is that correct? Is yeah. that that relieved? Has that released removed one of the barriers that you talked about? It, 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 it's removed part of the barrier, and it's a step in the right direction. So, the original proposal on the table. Um, from India and South Africa was a lot more broader than just COVID-19 vaccines. It was also test treatments. This is a very narrow um, equation when it comes to vaccines. So it's it's better than nothing. My fear is, is it's one of those things, the way it's been done is it kind of is very clear that this is the exemption to the rule, whereas what we are hoping to do is create a new norm. And the reality is, is... Um, you know, if you go to South Africa, the reason why they put this on the table is they they remember the days of apartheid in the night. Oh, what? Sorry, after apartheid, and they talk about a new medical apartheid that came in the 1990s. You had HIV/AIDS explode. Antiretrovirals became rapidly available in much of the world, and yet for such a low, long period of time, South Africa couldn't. Um, get their hands on it until eventually, you know, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, others came along and managed to produce them at low cost. And so how many people died in the meantime? And so that proposal is great for managing COVID as an isolated, um, but in terms of actually setting the norm for everything else needed, and in the future as well, when we have other pandemics, my fear is, is the lessons won't be learned and we'll be in the same place again. So it's step in the right direction. And Ngozi, the head of the WTO, who we worked with both prior to our election and in the lead up, has been pushing really, really hard. But it's like we have to use that as a flag in, in the sand and, and, and push a lot, a lot harder. Thank you very much, Michael. Just totally amazing. So very impressed. But a simple basic question. You're talking about all the money that global citizen has sort of uh, got from different people. How are the finances managed? Is do you do you manage like the global citizen or is it the major funding agency? How does it work? So I've always been a firm believer that you do what you do well and don't try and stand on the toes of others. And so for us. It, certain times we've had pressure to become a programmatic organization, but there are so many amazing organizations that do that work on the ground. And what we realized we did really well was advocating for policy change and holding leaders' feet to the fire and pushing them to do what's needed to be done. And so our, our real modus operandi is pushing business political leaders whether it's financing or the policy changes if it's money to give to those organizations that are doing direct work so if you take the case of one world together at home it was really important to us that especially after the us fell short going to american companies and our argument was look no one's going to be safe until everyone's safe there is a economic case america's step down will the american business community step down and to give that support to the world health organization but in many cases we what we also do the impact and accountability work once you've got the commitments because we know talk is cheap and politicians the devil is always in the detail so in that case we've learned over the years with business leaders we're like if you want us to applaud you we need you to sign this letter agreeing to disperse the money in three months because i've been caught out before where 
business leaders will make commitments and then it's over 12 months or three years and in a pandemic that's just not going to cut it and so for us we would follow up have you paid that we would go to the who have you received the money if not we would follow up in three months and we can say you know within three four months all of that 128 million dollars was paid but then the benefit of not getting involved in programmatic work is you keep your independence so we can then hold the who to the fire and say okay you've got the money now is the objectives being met and this was really important because covax for instance and we mobilized a ton of support for the covax but i'm not going to stand here and be an uncritical champion for covax covax moved far too slow it had the money and there were strategic mistakes made which meant people got vaccines much slower than what they should have done so we were also campaigning publishing questions and you need to answer this and so for us we've kept our independence on both sides to push for that accountability yeah thanks michael um a couple of questions um from our online and attendees. Penny Wensley asks, Michael, could you please tell us something more about Global Citizen's presence and work in the Pacific? Yeah, so for us, um, we actually um, um, updated our Global Citizen Australia office to Global Citizen Oceania, basically recognizing that the Pacific is a key part. And I would say there's, there's really three ways how we're thinking about the Pacific. One is, is how we're a platform for advocates and communities from the Pacific, both at the grassroots level and the government level. So during the pandemic, we worked with the government of Fiji to advocate to Australia and other forums as well. And we hear that that plays a critical role. And, and maybe it's the benefit of being Australian grown. There's lots of advocacy organizations campaigning in New York towards UN ambassadors. But many of them, it's the unfortunate reality, often forget about the Pacific. And so if we can give a big megaphone to those countries um, to, to have their voices amplified, that's, that's one part. Um, the second part and is, is the activists like Brianna, whose story I've shared, and our goal is and maybe we can even partner with the Institute. We want to bring her on a speaking tour of Australia bring her to parliament, bring that voice, the impacted communities, but also the solutions. And then increasingly, it's also about where our membership and broadcasters as well. I'm a firm believer in, in public diplomacy. We have about 100,000 members in Australia. And for us, it's growing that, but also across the region as well, um, and giving people an outlet to, to take action. And I think where we've also been able to play a role is, is forming interest in alliances. And so we've worked a lot with the Caribbean who um, don't like being called small island states, they call big ocean states. And they've asked for our help to work with the Pacific to form an alliance of countries when you're in, in these forum. And I think it's great that Indonesia has invited both the CARICOM nations and the Pacific Island nations um, to be part of that. But I, I think maybe that is a uniquely Australian thing. Like many organizations advocate for sub-Saharan Africa, which is important because it's a disproportionate amount of the global burden, but being able to bring that voice. But, you know, I'm not going to deny that it was always hard when the Australian government itself wasn't standing up to 
to the table on these issues like climate change. And certainly when I was at COP26, that was the big piece missing in action. Thanks. Uh, another question uh, from an online attendee, David Hall asked, thank you, Michael, great presentation. My question is, how do you keep your team motivated despite conflicts and obstacles? Yeah, it's it's hard. And we've caught up with some members of parliament this week. Um, and those that one were, you know, having a break, a little bit relaxed. And I, I said to them, I'm slightly envious because it's felt like the last two years, it's, you know, the equivalent of an election campaign. You do one and then you do another because, you know, you, you want to help and we've got the means to help. But at the same time, you know, everyone's going through their own their own work. Um, you know, Catherine here is from our Melbourne office. And, um, you know, our Melbourne team, you know, whilst working really hard, and when we started to be able to go back to normal, our Melbourne team was going through, I think, what, one of the world's biggest lockdown. And so for us, just from an organizational perspective, we've invested a lot in our people and culture team. Um, you know, we can probably always do things better, but being on top of that, providing a space for people to have their say, when you manage a team of 100 passionate advocates around the world, you know, everyone has strong, strong opinions. And we see this um, in the US and, and some of these issues impact them, such as what's just happened with Roe versus Wade. You know, we've got uh, a number of, you know, young staff in our organization who are very rightly filling some of their rights coming under threat. And so for us, it's having the organizational support um, to be able to have that. And I think being able to have open space where you can have candid, open um, conversation. Um, but I would say the second thing as well is, you know, we've, we've always tried to prioritize what's needed and say no to, you know, many opportunities pass by. And we've always tried to say, where can we uniquely add value? And our team work really hard. But what we can say and the best respect we can give them is we're not going to ask them to do things which other organizations can do. And so this comes back to, you know, the urge and the temptation. I wouldn't say it's mission creep. It could still be mission aligned, but to go down the programmatic route, always be clear, what do we do well? Let's strive for excellence. Let's let's focus on that. And um, I would say, I mean, our teams, I think some of the most hardest working people around the world who always just give so much of themselves especially during a pandemic and you know not just in america and australia you know our nigerian team was hosting a huge delegation the week a few weeks ago that, that there was this horrendous attack um, on a church in nigeria um, many of them had close families around in 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 an uh, across that town. The same in America recently. So the, unfortunately, these are things where everyone is going through something. Yeah, but we've just tried come together as much as possible, and you know, just been lucky to have um, yeah a, a great support mechanism, I suppose. Great, thanks. I've got a question. You've kind of maybe have answered it in your last comment. Um, you know, the advocacy that you're doing, it appears to me to really focus on um, the international organizations and individual countries and their commitments, and which, which, is, which is fantastic. In my experience, having lived mostly and worked in uh, developing countries, um, 
is is there any space in your work to help um, advocate for better policies within the countries themselves? Um, that that is to say, like let's say for example, Sri Lanka. Um, beyond the international factors, in my mind, and having visited and worked there quite a bit, it's also a failure of you know public policy and politics within Sri Lanka, um, and it's not necessarily what the international um, community is doing or not doing to help them, but at, the, at its root, it's, it's public policy potentially gone very badly wrong. Is there space for you to, to advocate in that, in that area uh, as well? Yeah, I, I would say two, two comments in respect to that. The first is we, um, we, we recognized during the course of a pandemic that, you know, as well as the campaigns we're pushing, we had a lot of advocates come into us actually asking for help to campaign for a safe open space where they could campaign and maybe it was because they didn't have access to funding maybe it's because they didn't have access in frankly in some countries certain types of advocacy is is even banned or or criminalized um and so we had a lot of these requests saying look can you actually help us have the ability to advocate and give us a platform, give us a stage? And so we've added a peer called In Defense of Advocacy Worldwide. And I think like when you look in Australia, even here, you had this issue. Part of the reason why our Global Citizen Australia team wasn't able to fundraise locally until very recently is because the Australian Charities Commission read it so narrowly as to what organizations would be allowed to receive tax deductible um, donations to the extent that our application was denied. And with the help of pro bono legal support, we took the Charities Commission to, to the tribunal last year. This was another battle we fought basically on the premise that charities shouldn't be muzzled and they have a legitimate role to participate in the public debate. Now, we won that and the new government's lifting up that precedent to ensure it doesn't happen again. But the reality is, is around the world, advocates don't have the ability to do that, to take on those fights. And so for us, in and of itself, the defense of advocacy, you know, creating that civic space, creating a safe space for advocates, and and campaigning for the types of capacity, the infrastructure, frankly, the funding as well to actually fund civil society. Some of our partners like the Ford Foundation have made this a real priority, but that's really how we see we can contribute to that, whether that's ad advocates in Sri Lanka or other ways, because they know, they know the solutions. We, we don't know the solutions, but if we can use our platforms to give, to help them have the freedom to be able to hold their leaders to account, then that's, that's where we could add value. And I would say the second thing is just, you know, yes, national governments play a role, but increasingly, you know, we've looked at the role of the private sector. You know, when you look at the debt crisis that many countries face, not all of it is sovereign um, debt. And over 50% actually comes from the private institutions, the institutions like BlackRock, those on Wall Street and others. And so increasingly, we've looked at what is the responsibility of the private sector and how do we campaign? And if you take an issue like climate change, 
80% of the world's industrial emissions come from the private sector and they can move much, much faster in many cases. And that goes at the local level, the subnational level. Last year, we supported a group of advocates in the Amazon. Bolsonaro was not going to lift a finger ahead of COP26 in Glasgow. So we worked with advocates, indigenous groups in the Amazon to campaign for their governors. And we had six governors to put together a commitment that they took to Glasgow, even if even if the national government didn't. So that maybe hopefully answers your question. And it does. And I think it it, you know, I think you're you're, as you said earlier, you're trying to focus on where you can add value. And how does it, if I can just follow up, how that must be a very challenging thing, you know, working with underground advocates in in countries sometimes you do not have a physical presence in. Um, how do you um you know the logistics of of funding flow how do you choose them how do you do due diligence on on them um how do you manage that yeah the the i think in short it's um partnering with organizations with the skills to do that when we were doing um the ukrainian um re relief response for instance you know we knew that many of the big international organizations like UNICEF, et cetera, that they would be fine. In fact, they were receiving more donations for Ukraine than they knew what to do with. And that's fine. But in many cases, the organizations that could make a difference on the ground was, um, you know, very grassroots organizations. The question is, is how do you coordinate that? Because with 100 staff globally, um, and I'm not an expert on Ukraine, it was my first time to, to Poland, but we we don't have the capacity to literally go okay this this bakery here is where there's going to be an excess of refugees one morning they need to have the the ability to produce bread this group over here is going to need funding for accommodation so for us we we very much operate on partnership and we found this organization called global given who basically had the skills they agreed two things one was to do the due diligence on the organizations Secondly, they agreed to disperse funding within a week. So they said, if we get this, we will disperse it to more than 30 grassroots organizations where the need is. And then our commitment to them was to drive funds, drive momentum towards them. And so often it's looking for those groups in partnership who are skilled, who know how to, to do that. Because if we had tried doing that, we would have made a mess. And then how do you select those 30 organizations? And then you end up, as often happens in humanitarian crises, you know, you have groups in one, one area with an excess of food just sat on the tarmac or, or clothes, mountains of clothes not being utilized. And then south of the border, you have maybe people who don't have anything. So fantastic. Any more questions from the audience uh, or online? Uh, hello, um, congratulations on your engagement um, and uh, very nice speech. Uh, my question is ultimately about responding to criticism uh, that you may get and ultimately how how uh, perhaps um, expected criticism uh, might be a part of your strategy implementation. For example, 
the reality that uh, crises often affect the most vulnerable people uh, the most. Um, taking that into mind, but also having some of the world's most richest people uh, be put on a stage and basically tell everyone else uh, what, what they know is uh, something that doesn't go down well in a lot of circles that aren't exactly talked about by mainstream media circles that in my demographic um, are very prominent about speaking against. Um, so yeah, uh, how does does any of that come into come into play significantly when implementing a strategy? Is there some kind of plan to uh, talk with people that like get your message across why you're doing what you're doing to people that might not agree with it? Um, yeah, no, it's yeah. it's it's a really good question. Um, look, I think you know authenticity is always key, and the key thing to authenticity is not to try and be an expert on things you don't know. Um, and if I take the example, um, and I realize that they are a very polarizing couple, <laughs> and perhaps more popular in certain places than they are in others but the duke and duchess of sussex prince harry and Meghan. um so we started working with them last year just after they had done that interview with oprah and i know there's views on both sides my mom is a devout monarchist who is in the uk right now and went to the platinum jubilee and and loves all that sort of stuff so completely get all that but Last year, they made the decision. They said, look, we are going to be advocates for vaccine equity. And they said, you know, what we're not going to do is get on stage and tell people what we think should happen. And we are going to go to those communities and find out what's what's needed. And I don't mean, you know, that's asking, hey, Michael, can you bring me a list of messages that you think are distilled that you... Um, uh, you, you think's needed. They literally wrote a list of experts, scientists, as many people as possible. They did roundtables. They did a whole bunch of things. And when they spoke, it was saying, look, intellectual property, these things on manufacturing, you're here advocating. And they would say, okay, um, Secretary Blinken, you want to give 60 million vaccines away. That's all well and good, but that's just a drop in the ocean and that's a Band-Aid solution. And they're saying, we've mapped out the manufacturers. There's people who know how to do this if they have access, listen to the experts. And I think, you know, if more leaders had done that during the pandemic and actually taken the time to have a dialogue, you know, why is it that the, um, the foreign minister of Zambia can't get a meeting with BlackRock, for instance, to discuss their their debt. And so I think for us, the authenticity, who you're speaking on behalf of, and that's the difference between an activist and an advocate. Everyone can be an advocate if you're advocating on someone's behalf. And the key is to be authentic, make sure you know what you're advocating for. Whereas an activist, you know, that's someone who's impacted, that's someone in, in the trenches. And that's often who, who you're representing, especially if it's harmful for them to be out in the, in the public limelight. So that's, that's one aspect. 
Um, but it's it's an interesting question because you have to devote the time in order to learn and to do that. I would I would say the second key is is around transparency. And what I mean by that is if someone hasn't followed through on a commitment, you know, not to cover for them. And I do see some in the advocacy space because they are afraid of losing access, they will cover for policymakers. So a policymaker makes a commitment. Okay, they haven't followed through. Should we be calling out? And you hear advocates start to rationalize it because they say, oh, look, if we do, we've got to give them time. Then they won't meet with us and we won't be able to you know, have a say, have an input. And then that's where people lose trust. That's where people um, become cynical. And so I think the, the transparency and the authenticity, and you know, I think even at Global Citizen, you know, all of us as advocates can do better and strive to learn, but they're, they're two principles which we try and imbue in, in our advocacy work and, and those of those that we allow on our stage. Yeah. Great, thanks. We have another question from Samina. Thank you, Michael. Another question. I mean, there's one Michael, and then there are 99 others. But how do you make sure that in each one of these countries, you train a lot of those 100 people, Michael, plus 99? Uh, do you have a movement or some way of encouraging other young people? to become advocates in their own country on behalf of global citizen? And if yes, what is the structure? So I am, again, this is the moment where you um, see to someone else. So I'm actually gonna um, handball it, as we say, um, to Catherine um, to talk about some of the plans we've got. But I, I would just say it at a high level principle is, yeah, we recognize increasingly, you know, responsibility for that next generation of leaders and where we can be helpful. It's something we thought a ton about and how we can best do it. And we we started to think we don't we don't have all the answers and there's probably better ideas of what we could be doing, but we've got a few. But just in this region, I'll, I'll throw to Catherine to answer. Thank you. This was uh, unexpected, but uh, <laughs> a delight to speak about some of our future plans. So uh, as Michael says, we we want to create those opportunities and we're aware of the the role and responsibility that, that we have in the arena. So we're planning for a youth leadership summit for the Asia Pacific region at the start of next year, really creating the space in partnership with Oak Tree, who are very specialized in the work of rallying young people to deliver those outcomes, to to be those change makers, to create a forum where they can come, learn, be inspired from each other through other leaders from, from both Australia and the surrounding regions. And who knows, we, we want that to be the space where the, the next equivalent founders of Global Citizen are able to, to feel that they are safe and supported to, to take the, the challenging steps that are required, the, the bravery that's required to, to enter into what is a, a turbulent world, but to find avenues to, I suppose, um, further us all and further the objectives create the world we'd like to see so that's a that's a really big priority for us and we're looking forward to forming great partnerships and working with sponsors we're speaking to a number of cities I will say they're on the east coast uh, to bring this event to life but looking really looking forward to that opportunity look it's it's on the table it's on the table <laughs> 
Um, Michael especially puts it on the table. <laughs> one, one of the thing, great partnerships we had before the pandemic with the McCusker Center here at UWA actually um, was they would uh, fund, provide two opportunities where they would fund support to students to come and intern with us in New York for three months and during the UN General Assembly and then they would get credit towards their degree. Um, obviously during the pandemic that wasn't possible but we met with the center on Monday um, and they're quite keen to reactivate that and have it going in future years and we were talking you know things like that could be the basis to scale up even even more and actually people who have been on those programs we've been later employed as well but it's something which we've put in a ton of time and energy and if anyone's got any ideas uh, about what we could be doing we'd, we'd love to hear them great thanks michael i i i'm sure you've answered this question before but i think you know as we can come up to the last sort of 10 minutes or so that we have and please if anyone else has got any more questions please uh, raise your hands or online uh, uh, indicate as such i'd like to understand you know you know you you went on your bursary you know 10 years ago um maybe in a, in a kind of a summarized version you know how did one thing lead to another and you co-founded global citizen how did the networking happen and you know that light bulb moment you know i'm, I'm sure you've told some of people in this audience how that that backstory but i for one yeah. don't know it in detail as much as probably others here like sue and samina yeah, I remember part of I had to write a 2000 word blog, I think, and which might be around somewhere, which I can send. Um, but look, I, I think from my perspective, I would say, and it goes back to what we were saying before around the authenticity. Part of the reason why we were campaigning on polio eradication was because, you know, we recognized that poverty is a very multifaceted um, topic. And we felt polio was the perfect tangible concrete measure of progress that you could have a conversation with Australians about ordinary members of the community many of them remembered polio it was easy to understand and it was close to eradication and also it was a hopeful story you know when you are telling members of the public what's possible one of the best motivating factors to inspire action is to see progress see hope and so, you know, I had learned about polio from many Rotarians and others around um, around Perth, but I hadn't really known what the effort was like. And, you know, those stories are incredibly powerful. It comes back to this idea of authenticity. If I was going to be advocating to members of parliament, to DFAT, to even artists to jump on board, needed to understand that story. And so that was my pitch to the um institute that it would make me a, a far more effective advocate so i went over there saw the polio programs and i was able to go you know when when these polio vaccination campaigns take place it's really extraordinary you go to a state like bihar and over the space of three days they will vaccinate millions upon millions of children under the age of five and it's been called it's so epic and in in its scale it's been called um the world's largest nonviolent army and the reason why i particularly chose india is it was in 2012 that india had just been declared polio free it had gone a year without polio and so it was really held up as the gold standard 
And I wanted to see why, why was that? Because po India was where polio started. They say thousands of years ago, that's where it came from. And so, you know, how, how did they eradicate it? And you look, you looked at India, you looked at the fact it was densely populated, poor sanitation infrastructure, you know, poor in some cases, health infrastructure, it's the perfect storm for a disease like polio spread. And so it was meeting many of the health workers, the heroes on the front lines, um, the local administrators, those who had designed the program. And it was aspects of that that could be taken to other countries, but also those stories that could be taken back here to Australia as part of our campaign. And, and I would share many of those stories in, in meetings with members of parliament. And I should say before a lot of that campaign and the Australian government had actually stopped funding polio for a number of years because they didn't think it was working. They didn't um, think it was making progress. And I was able to, you know, show those um, accounts firsthand. And I remember speaking to one MP later saying, what was it when, when the government supported polio? And fortunately, that was continued under the previous government. I said, what was it that made you act? You've got all these priorities. What made you advocate for budget allocations to polio? And they said it was the stories. It was the stories you shared. That's what really drove it home. And it was, it was inspiring to hear those accounts. And so, look, there, there were many people involved, so I can only talk to my experience. But when I was sitting, whether it was Bronwyn Bishop as the speaker, whether it was um, Tony Abbott as opposition leader and others, it was in those meetings I would recount again and again those stories from India and what I had seen and, you know, the, just the power of community development. Great. Thanks. Fantastic. I think, um, and and... Just on that very note, you know, what, how did you conceive, okay, I'm going to pick this as my value add, and I'm going to pick up the phone and call Tony Abbott as the opposition leader and make an appointment and get through the staffers and, and um, you know, Obronwin Bishop, you know, and do, the, and do that. Look, it was, um, I'd love to say it was like a strategy and a roadmap. And sometimes when you do these talks, you always people tend to talk and make it all sound like everything went according to plan. Look, um, when we, we got started, you know, and we started hearing the stories on polio, um, you know, there was the Commonwealth heads of government meeting that was taking place in Perth and here in Australia. And, um, you know, we thought that was a perfect moment to put polio on the agenda because of the four countries, which were then classified as polio endemic, three of them were commonwealth countries you had pakistan india and nigeria also these summits tend to be talk fest i mean the chogam's going on at the time in rwanda you have over 50 countries it's very hard to get consensus on anything can produce something tangible and so we thought felt okay this could be a, a a signature issue and if you're in the government shoes maybe they're looking for a win they're looking for something and maybe this could be the moment that is remembered as a turning point in the effort to eradicate polio. And so for us, it was building out that story. And it was really trying to think, you know, a lot of advocates often trip themselves up because they, they think being right is enough. And so you get all your evidence, you get all your data, you go to Canberra, you go to Parliament House, you go to the UN. But rarely is that the case. It's about, well, what is actually, actually, it was my, um, uh, 
professor, my honors professor, Bruce Stone, who we were talking about earlier, he, he told me it's policy entrepreneurship. I remember telling him, I was doing my honors with him at a time, and he said, policy entrepreneurship and innovation. And what is that? And essentially what he meant is it's about, okay, how do you look at the government's agenda? How do you look at what you're trying to achieve? And it sounds simple, but it's not always done. And how do you come up with a narrative that fits the government's narrative? And so with polio and that chogum, it was looking like, okay, the government would want to win. They want something related to Commonwealth, tick, tick, tick. This is also very concrete, tangible to explain to the public. And the fourth thing we found out in our research is it was an Australian Rotarian who had started the polio program. So we thought, well, Australia always likes a good Australian story. And we thought, well, this could come full circle. And um, so we had the story and we felt that was a pretty good pitch. But then to your point, how do we get it in front of the people? And it was actually another event here at UWA. Um, you know, I was determined relentless and Melissa Park was the member of parliament Fremantle at the time. And again, had an interest and she was speaking at saying at UWA. And I remember grabbing her on the way out. And I think partly it was just, you know, you've got to be a little bit shameless and, you know, partly for UWA doing quiz nights, et cetera. I had never had any shame with asking for stuff for free or, or for support. And I just asked, her, I went up and I said, look, we've got an idea for Chogham. Here's a letter. Could you get it in the hands of someone in, in the prime minister's office who could be helpful? And I followed up with her. She said, yes, yes, I've got your letter. Didn't think I'd get a response. And then one time it was when I was at the ref, actually, getting a coffee at 8 a.m. in the morning, I got a call from a blocked number and um, they said, it's prime minister's office. We're going to be in South Fremantle. Melissa Parks put this forward. How would you like 10 minutes with Julia Gillard to discuss your, your letter? And um, went in, practiced my pitch in front of my, my dad, who's here tonight, my mum and dad, went in and I remember still very nervous sitting in front and basically saying thanks for making time and she said um well michael i'll be honest i'm on my third shot of red bill for the evening get on with it if you've got something to say and so i launched into my pitch and um by the end of it she was nodding very measured and she said um look it's all very interesting it's a good idea but i need some help and what she was essentially asking for is saying, look, we politicians need permission to spend what is in the end taxpayers' money. And, you know, I thought, okay, well, maybe if we did something, we organized people, we showed that there was big public approval. And that's where the idea of a concert came up. Of course, I had never organized a concert in my lifetime. Bruce Stone had convinced me to be president of the UWA Politics Club. And we organized a sausage sizzle in which um, about 50 people signed up on O-Day, came along, saw that there was all these cold sausages and what a disaster it was and promptly left. So my track record of event organizing wasn't much, but we were able to get many people on board with the power of that story. And I think I cannot um, overstate the importance of narrative and power of storytelling because people were inspired by what was what could potentially be possible but we pulled this concert together and then the very next day Julie Gillard brought these leaders together and announced that Australia would be rejoining the polio program 
put $50 million on the table. There was the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Nigeria, Canada, the UK, and it was this renewed commitment. And since then, every Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting has renewed that pledge um, to put money um, on the table. And so, again, it was, you know, kind of a concert was a means to an end. And then through that, we learned, okay, people actually listen. It's a good way of mobilizing support. And then one thing led to the other. And nine months after that, we were standing on the Great Lawn of Central Park for what was the first Global Citizen Festival. And now, 10 years later, we're um, about to celebrate our 10th anniversary in September. And so, yeah, that was the story. I think that's a great, that's a great time to... Uh clap and you know I'll, I'll stop i've got so many more questions uh, <laughs> but i'm gonna i'm gonna stop we've got a time limit uh um, if there's any more questions from the audience i'll take one more there's no more from the online audience oh, there's one question here there's one question from the gentleman in blue yeah and after that we'll wrap up Uh, yeah, good day, Michael. Um, thanks for the talk. Congratulations on the engagement. Um, I'm just wondering, as someone who's sort of at the coalface in terms of engineering change, what do you think is the single biggest impediment to progress? Uh, that's a bit of a big question, or is it more of a multifaceted issue and there's no one single thing that could be targeted? No, it, it, it's a good question. And I would say, uh, I mean, obviously that changes, right? Depending on where you were. I mean, as a event uh, organization known for big live events when the pandemic happened that in some respects was existential how do we pivot but i would say right now i think one of the biggest threats not just to advocacy and and policy change but just actually making meaningful change you know is is this polarization we see in america and you know usually when change happens right and you talk to all those that have had policy wins, it's very rare that you get everything you want at, at once. Usually you may get some um, ground, you build on that momentum, breeds momentum, and, and you go from there. At the moment, I do I think we're in this interesting situation in, in America, at least, where people will disagree with someone on one issue. And because they disagree with someone on that issue, it means they can't work with them on issues they agree with. And not only is that the case that people live their lives like that, but it means they call out those who also engage with those people. And so you are forced to choose sides. And once you've chosen sides, you stick with those sides. And it's very hard to create change when people can't talk to one another. And, you know, I think I can, I can even see that in our own work. Um, you know, I'll share this story in this close confines, but we, we had a senator, um, a Republican senator, who recently spoke at our conference. And this Republican senator is one of the few senators in America on the Republican side who will publicly talk about climate change. And he supported the bipartisan bill from Biden last year um, to put it, which included money for climate infrastructure. And so that's a base and that's was the basis we were speaking to him. 
However, on, on Roe versus Wade, he's very firm in that he's pro-life, right? Um, and, you know, we, we, we've, put, we've publicly said what we think of Roe versus Wade. And, you know, our, our view as an organization is when you put bans on abortion and the right to abortion, it leads to um, unsafe abortions, not necessarily lowers the, the limit, just leads to an increase, frankly, in maternal mortality and deaths in childbirth. But anyway that's his religious beliefs that's his beliefs whatever so i received people saying to me you shouldn't invite him to speak on climate change because of his views on that issue and pro-life and if i had listened to that and disinvited him that senator would have never opened the doors ever again to our work and so what happened he came it was a great conversation on climate change and you know who we met in new york it was the labor very left-wing and prime minister of barbados and um they had an exchange backstage and they probably would have never met they bonded over the fact that this senator was from louisiana she was from barbados they had very similar sugarcane industries background but also they were both facing the threat of hurricanes as they approached the hurricane season and on that issue of climate vulnerability they could make common cause and in actual fact she was able to speak to him about an issue in which she wanted his support and she was going through getting financing credit from the u.s treasury and she said i'm trying to get this support so when we have a hurricane we're not left bankrupt and he signed on to support and she said me coming all this way meeting that senator finding common cause right mean could mean the difference in billions of dollars the next time inevitably they have a hurricane in in the caribbean and so i i share that because that was a practical outcome that wouldn't have been possible we had published what we had said on roe versus wade he could have chosen not to come we didn't censor ourselves but on the cause of climate change we was able to make progress and so i share that because i think it's instructive and i do worry about the direction I, I think that's where you end up with civil wars frankly and i don't say that with hyperbole and i would just say from an outsider looking here in australia i think it seemed like that sort of division and polarization was and i might be naive in saying this uh, from a distance but was largely rejected at the last australian election and saying no on climate change on these issues on gender equality we're not going to have that type of polarization we are going to be able to have um discussion and, and make policy so uh, that's uh, yeah so in terms of biggest threat right now to advocacy orgs it's it's that which um yeah i think is a, is, a, is a huge huge issue to us that's interested in creating change Great, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for that both insightful and uh, inspirational um, presentation and Q&A session. So that's fantastic. Can you please join me in thanking Michael?